Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did the great author of horror and science fiction, H.P. Lovecraft, know more than he let on about the multiverse? Because quantum physics suggests that all possible worlds are real, could Lovecraft's characters such as Cthulhu and the unnameable Haster actually exist? I like that, the unnameable Haster. Could books like the Necronomicon or the Necotic Manuscripts be real? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 375th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those questions from The Edge came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. This evening we are pleased to honor the memory of the 20th century's um, probably greatest author of horror and fantasy fiction, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, known to his friends as H.P.L., Lovecraft was born right here in Rhode Island in Providence in 1890 and lived most of his life here. He was a seventh cousin of your humble co-hosts through the Whipple family on his mother's side. So many of uh, Lovecraft's stories, especially the ones written between uh, 1926 and the mid-1930s, uh, parallel ideas that uh, we see in the multiverse theories of the uh, paranormal that my dad and I use. And uh, in literature, Lovecraft was the first author to develop ideas of total alien creatures living not only on other planets, but in parallel worlds. At the same time, several literary critics have pronounced Lovecraft his own strangest character. In a time when letter writing, as opposed to email or texting, was still an art, Lovecraft spent enormous amounts of time, and who knows how much postage, on thousands of brilliant and entertaining letters he wrote to his many correspondents, covering every imaginable subject, including, occasionally, quantum physics. So think of how many more great stories he could have written if he hadn't spent all that time writing letters. This is what they, some of the critics say. Mm. Now, according to my late mother, Lovecraft even corresponded with my father, a dedicated Lovecraft fan who lived not far away in Hartford, Connecticut, in the 1920s and 30s. Tragically, those letters were lost long ago, so how long they corresponded, what they said, whether they ever met, or whether they even knew they were related, we don't know. By the way, last Monday, August 20th, would have been Lovecraft's 122nd birthday. So we could spend the next ten shows on Lovecraft as a character. To learn more about the man, I suggest uh, the book H.P. Lovecraft, A Life by S.T. Yoshi, the great, probably the greatest Lovecraft scholar now living, uh, or the chapters on Lovecraft in my own book, written along with Glenn Laxton, Rhode Island, A Genial History. There are hundreds of other sources, as any online search will show, many books, many articles. But let's move on to the multiverse, what Lovecraft knew and when he knew it. So, hold on a minute there. Before we continue into this, the multiverse of Lovecraft, it's time for our weekly paranormal contest. So, after uh, destroying your brilliant monologue, last week's question was, <laughs> if you got uh, lost in scape or swamp, what creature would you run into? Well, a number of people tried and failed to get the answer to that one. The lizard man, who supposedly lives in Skateboard Swamp and other wetlands in and around Lee County, South Carolina. The answer was just too simple, I suppose. I guess. Well, I don't know. But that's not far from Lancaster County, where your mom's family comes from. Oh, yeah, that is true. <clears throat> so, well, anyway. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So, so, uh, but we are related to the lizard man, too, I suppose. Well, if we're related to Lovecraft, I suppose we could be related to the uh, lizard man. Yeah, well, you can be related to anybody, I suppose. If you go back far enough. The vagaries of human genealogy. Indeed. 
So, anyway, uh, this week we have a Lovecraftian question for you. In uh, what Lovecraft story is the creature known as... Vunith? Is that Vunith? Vunith. Sorry. You know, it's one of your favorite stories. I know. Uh, mentioned. I'd be first to get that right and win a copy of Rhode Island: A Genial History by Paul F. Eno and Glenn Laxton. Well, we do welcome calls this evening, especially from Lovecraft fans, uh, or even if you like to become a Lovecraft fan, that's always there's always room for more. The numbers locally or from Canada, 401-766-1240, or from anywhere in the U.S., 800-449-1240. All right, so here's a quote from uh, one of Lovecraft's most famous stories, uh, The Call of Cthulhu, written in 1926. The old ones were, the old ones are, and the old ones shall be, not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us, unseen. Uh, okay, so, so that that's the call of Cthulhu. Of course, the pronunciation of Cthulhu or Cthulhu or whatever is, is really, it's spelled um, C-T-H-U-L-H-U, but Lovecraft went to great pains in his uh, somewhat jocular letters to say it was not meant to be pronounced by human vocal cords because he was very much into the other and the alien and his stories. So anyway, we'll get more into that. In a story called The Dreams in the Witch House, written in 1932, a luckless student at Lovecraft's fictional Miskatonic University in fictional Arkham, Massachusetts, ends up rooming in a 235-year-old house that reminds us of the crazy case in Connecticut that Ben and I have been working on for the last seven years. Worlds seem to blend, time and space bend and stretch, and odd figures come and go. In that story, Lovecraft talks about the student who bears the good old New England name of Walter Gilman and his studies in math and physics. Lovecraft even mentions by name some of the early headliners in quantum physics, Max Planck, Werner Heisenberg, Albert Einstein, and Willem de Sitter. Now, throughout his stories, Lovecraft suggests that we shouldn't, we shouldn't learn more about reality than is good for us. Uh, here's another quote. Non-Euclidean calculus and whatever that means, and quantum physics are enough to stretch any brain. And when one mixes them with folklore and tries to trace a strange background of multidimensional reality behind the ghoulish hints of gothic tales and the wild whispers of the chimney corner, one can hardly expect to be wholly free from mental tension. Unquote. Now that sounds a lot like what we say on this show when we talk about who's really behind or what's really behind human folklore. Now, at her trial, the witch who haunts Gilman's room in this, in this story, uh, The Dreams in the Witch House, quote, had told Judge Hawthorne of lines and curves that could be made to point out directions leading through the walls of space beyond, and had implied that such lines and curves were frequently used at certain midnight meetings in the dark valley of the White Stone behind Meadow Hill and on the unpeopled island in the river, unquote. Now, here's a very apt comment on all this from author and Lovecraft enthusiast Chris Paradis, uh, whose excellent blog you can find at www.chrisparadis.blogspot.com. Quote, of course, Lovecraft is alluding to Raymanian, Rim, uh, that's the rhyme and the, the 
uh, physicist as opposed to Euclidean geometry and playfully merges it with pentacles and witches' drawings of Kabbalistic sketches. Hawthorne is clearly an illusion, that's allusion, not illusion, not just to the real judge, but to Nathaniel Hawthorne and his witch tales. Nathaniel Hawthorne, of course, being the author of The Scarlet Letter and other great New England stories. This is a parody, but as I read this passage, it excited me to realize how often Lovecraft was prescient. In other words, could sort of see, was ahead of his time, could see ideas coming down the pike. Now, years afterward, Feynman would come up with eerie glyphs to illustrate quantum interactions. Unquote. Now, of course, Richard Feynman was a 20th century physicist who developed a thought diagram still used today to calculate rates for electromagnetic and weak particle processes. The diagrams provide a convenient shorthand for the calculations. They are a code physicists use to talk to one another about their calculations. So the odd thing is uh, Feynman d- didn't receive his uh, doctorate in physics until 1942, uh, five years after Lovecraft's death. And a serious, uh, or a serious theory, sorry, <laughs> a serious theory of the multiverse was really developed, wasn't really developed until around 1957, uh, 20 years after Lovecraft's death, until Princeton, do- uh, until Princeton doctoral candidate in physics uh, Hugh Everett wrote his theses about it. Uh, so, where did Lovecraft get his ideas about all this stuff at such an early age or early stage? Sorry. Well, did H.P. Lovecraft really have some kind of secret knowledge about the multiverse? Did he have access to books that he wrote about as fiction, but that really existed? Well, the thing is, didn't you mention to me once that he actually thought that was all like poppycock? Oh, yeah, I'm going to get to that. Don't sorry. rush me, son. I'm sorry. Okay. I, didn't mean to ju- I didn't mean to jump the gun. <laughs> okay. And everybody's anxious about that. Uh, ben and all his friends, and, and I also are, are Lovecraft fans, so we're, we're, we're kind of psyched about this. Books like the Necronomicon, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, that's, uh, that's what they, he actually called it, or the Necotic Manuscripts, or a book called the Unausprechlichen Kulten, if your um, German is any good, which actually translates, it's supposed to be uh, unmentionable cults. There was some question about the word Unausprechlichen um uh, at one point, I thought it meant unpronounceable. Unpronounceable cults. Uh, yeah, the words like Cthulhu and all this, that might be. But I guess uh, Uno Spreshik actually does mean unmentionable or, or, or something like that, forbidden or whatever. Lovecraft liked to use words like that. But anyway, uh, did he have some kind of secret knowledge? Well, I don't think so. And if you look at Lovecraft the Man, you can begin to see why. So while he never went to college, Lovecraft spent his entire life around books on uh, many different subjects. His family had a huge private library, and Lovecraft taught himself to read at the age of four, and he lived uh, most of his life surrounded by uh, the campus of Brown University in Providence, where a monument commemorates him uh, and his work to this day. Yeah, I was present at the dedication of that monument 22 years ago, I'm happy to say. Anyway, Lovecraft himself was a professed atheist who appears not to have had a spiritualist bone in his body. In other words, he wasn't the sort of person to believe in cosmic monsters. The talk of aliens in those days was purely theoretical. The UFO thing really didn't get started until the late 1940s, although it's present throughout history. But it wasn't a big topic on the minds of, of a lot of people. Uh, in, in Lovecraft's letters, uh, which have all been published in five volumes, believe it or not, he wrote far more letters than he did stories. Uh, he writes again and again that he is a strict scientific materialist, someone who believes that everything comes down to matter and energy in the good old 18th and 19th century senses of those words. 
I don't know if there are too many of those left scientific materialists. Uh, a lot of the atheists we talk to, or, or the, the super skeptics, as I refer to them, who sometimes will uh, criticize uh, all the uh, stuff that goes on in paranormal research, and rightly so in many cases, very often are, I think, probably among the final holdouts of the idea that everything is really based on matter, uh, and it, that there's not something beyond that. Uh, they tend to be atheistic, you know, non-believers in God, even though quantum mechanics is kind of blowing all that out of the water now, showing that there's a lot more to the universe or the multiverse uh, than there is than there previously had been had been thought to be. So um, he was one of them anyway. Uh, again, and having lived you know, living in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, uh, that was not an unusual position at all. So anyway, Lovecraft loved to read, and he loved to write. But his short stories reflect a world, indeed a multiverse, that is so opposite from his personal beliefs that many people who didn't know him didn't know whether to take him seriously or not. <clears throat> Amidst all his reading, Lovecraft came across the early writings of those who pioneered quantum physics, named a few a couple of minutes ago, uh, whose roots reach back to 1838 and the work of Michael Faraday. So while Lovecraft might not have heard of the multiverse theories of, of, of Everett in the late 1950s or some of the, uh, the, the advancements that have been made in quantum physics, he certainly knew about quantum physics. He mentions it in some of his letters because it started way back in 1838 uh, and was developed from there. And this, there were some jumps ahead with Niels Bohr and Heisenberg around the uh, turn of the 20th century. So he was a, a guy who was well up on his science and uh, knew about that. So anyway, the roots of our modern quantum concepts of the multiverse would have been discernible in books that Lovecraft might have read. Now, he was no math genius, as far as we know, but he was very interested in science. As a matter of fact, when he was a kid, he had a chemistry set and nearly blew his finger off. Fortunately, he had an uncle who was a ah, doctor yes, who so saved they, the thing. Yeah, so they give you plutonium in like the kids' chemistry sets. Well, practically, I remember I had a chemistry set when I was a kid, and I, like I almost blew up the room, and my mother took it, away, grandma took it away from me. So, oh, too bad. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's, stuff, it's stuff you'd never see today. To, to me, the only the, the only fun in physics is blowing the place up. I'm not physics in, in chemistry was blowing the place up. In physics, using well, math to blow. Well, I remember up. when when I was in. I, I suppose I don't know if this. Lovecraft felt the same way or not, but science really can be fun. There was a uh, when, I, when I attended the uh, St. Thomas Seminary, the first seminary I attended in, in uh, Connecticut. There was a, a most of the classes were taught by priests, and we had one who would teach who had a science degree and he would teach chemistry and um, a few other things. And so there was he was demonstrating it at one time the uh, how an electrical current will get carried through a group of people. Uh, but he said, oh, whatever you do, you know, don't, don't, don't grab my hand. Don't close the circle or, or you know, or the last person get, gets a, gets a shock. So we all had it around and I was the last person in line and I kind of sneaked over and I kind of grabbed his hand. He went, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was not, the things like that did not endear me to these fast seminar faculties. In any case, Lovecraft loved his science and, uh, had lots of, of fun or attempted to with his science kids. Terrori like terrorizing yeah. seminary teachers. So I can easily imagine that as happened to me when I encountered quantum concepts in the 1970s while doing ghost research, Lovecraft uttered a great aha when he encountered those, uh, those ideas in the midst of his work on fantasy and horror fiction. And as uh, Ben said before, he was one of the first authors, certainly in the 20th century, to apply the ideas of 
these utterly alien, utterly outside worlds and creatures to fiction. He got away from ghosts and vampires and the usual swill that people would write about into something entirely different. That's what really made him, uh, made him famous later on. So in that fiction, Lovecraft was fascinated by the idea of ultimate outsideness, as we said, the ultimate other. The basis of his major stories is the idea, almost unique in literature up to that time, that long before humans existed, the Earth was ruled by utterly alien beings from outside, with a capital O. Even the physics of these critters was utterly different. Early man worshipped them as gods, but humanity itself was completely irrelevant in the scenario. You know, I often wonder, Ben, you know, coming out of the 1930s when, you know, you, you, a gentleman did not leave the house without a tie and a jacket on and a hat and living in a very orderly society in which everybody pretty much knew what they were supposed to do and who they were and what their pecking order in society was, that this idea of utterly alien outsideness and uh, the, the idea that, th- that these things could wipe away man at the drop of a hat and not think any more about it, than than us stepping on an anthill could have been kind of an intriguing thought. Yeah, well, considering it was like he had the whole like spiritualist thing going on, I'm trying to think of how to word it because people thought of things in different way. Yeah, well, well, he well he he rejected. That. I remember. Um, I guess he was. He never went to the seminary, of course, but he was. In, I guess he was excused from Sunday school because he would ask questions like. And I guess he he, he was. Uh, I guess his family was was Baptist by by uh, denomination. And as a matter of fact, they attended that beautiful uh, First Baptist Church in Providence, which was um, uh, with a beautiful steeple designed by Christopher oh, Wren yep, yep. at the bottom of the hill below the Brown University campus, and he, yeah. which is the area where he lived most of his life. And he would go to Sunday school there and ask questions like, okay, well, where did Mrs. Kane come from? Nah. And, uh, you know, things like that. Oh, and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, at, at this stage today, it doesn't, you know, that, that's that's kind of a silly question because that, that's all, and anyway, I don't know, it depends. It, they must have been semi-fundamentalists as far as the Bible was concerned. But but uh, I guess they uh, they quietly requested that his um, mother and his grandfather keep, keep him out of Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> confusing uh, everybody. But um, I, I must confess to have... Um, Done a few things like that in my. But the thing uh, is, that is a really career. interesting concept, like that he came up with. That you know, what if we just don't matter to these like gin- these ginormous beings? Yeah. And it's like it's it's kind of interesting because everyone at the time was like, oh yeah, like God totally cares about me and like just me yeah. alone. And then especially it's like, today when everybody's a VIP, you know, we've come through our school system. And I'm okay, you're okay, uh, everybody gets a trophy, and then you hit uh, real life, quote-unquote, and it doesn't work that way, and everybody's mad and wants the you know, the socialist workers' paradise to dawn, or the socialist non-workers' paradise, and the, I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, but that was, a, that was a different age. And if you really wanted to shake somebody up, you would question, you know, the, the, the basics of reality. Lovecraft himself wrote a brilliant... Um, a piece of, of nonfiction it was an essay called Supernatural Horror and Fiction. And he said, there's a very, he pointed out there's a very thin line between humor and horror. And, and yeah. nothing is more terrifying to the human spirit than a displacement in time and space. Very simple. And we run into that all the time. That's the basis of our work in paranormal research because, you know, is, when you look at like what goes on in this house or that house, it, it's, a, it's a disjointedness in time and space. 
Uh, well, apparently, like, the reason why we laugh is because we find something incredible. Like, it's like, you wouldn't normally see that. Like, let, let's say, um, you have a really stupid joke, like, uh, two peanuts walk into a bar, one was assaulted. And it's like, <laughs> peanut, yeah, see, peanuts don't walk into a bar, peanuts can't even move. So you think it's you think it's funny because it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So things that don't make sense are either funny or completely terrifying. Yeah, no, it's true. That's the, the among the vagaries of of the human mind, the human psychology. So, in any case, but funny. At no point does Lovecraft have these these beings. These and and they vary what they're called from story to story. You've always got Cthulhu and Yog Sothoth and guys like that. But you've got you know the the old ones, the great old ones, and and uh, the uh, sometimes the, the elder, the the other gods, and things of this kind. And again, it depends on the story. Now, Lovecraft's more um, had several friends who were crazy about organizing everything, and especially August Derleth, uh, who was a Wisconsin young, a young writer from Wisconsin who corresponded with Lovecraft. Never met him, but took it upon himself after Lovecraft died to sort of become. Lovecraft's, I don't know, successor or or, or whatever, and uh, but in fairness, and he really wasn't a very good writer, in my opinion. But but he what he did do was to preserve and publish Lovecraft's works, um, so several of which had never seen print before. And were it not for August Derleth, regardless of what you think of him and his writing, we might never have heard of Lovecraft. But in any case, he tried to take the Cthulhu, the, the Cthulhu mythos, as it's called, or the Lovecraft mythos, you know, all these ideas about these weird gods and, the, and all the strange things they did, and he tried to organize them by name and by category, and, and Lovecraft really never intended that to happen. He wrote each story independently of every other story. Yeah, it so, just uh, happened. So a, another bit of evidence that maybe he didn't know anything special and that the, the, this this was really... He, was just, um, he just had a great <clears throat> imagination. <laughs> he had a tremendous imagination. He was able to put two and two together, and... and so I think, uh, uh, but again, it's very much like quantum mechanics because the physics of these creatures was very different, uh, and quantum mechanics suggests that from universe to universe, if that's how it's organized, the physics may be very different one to the other. So uh, anyway, this this theme carries on to the idea that these great old ones or whatever, uh, depending on the story, would someday not only used to rule the earth, but would someday return and take over the Earth again, very probably wiping out humanity in the process. So when his stories started to appear in the uh, pulp magazines of the 1920s and 30s, especially the great Weird Tales magazine, uh, Lovecraft got a huge uh, charge out of the readers who took them seriously. And many readers wrote in and wanted to know where Lovecraft got his knowledge and where they could get copies of the forbidden books he talked about in the stories. There's I don't fu- want to know where to get the Necronomicon. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a... A funny story that, well, first of all, Lovecraft kind of had a low opinion of the readers of the pulp magazine. They called them pulp magazines because they were made from the, the cheapest possible paper. And um, I, I, I loved your grandmother very much, but there's one thing I'll never forget her for. Your grandfather had, uh, the one who supposedly corresponded with Lovecraft, yeah. had a complete collection, start to finish, I think it was 1919 to 1952 or 53, of every single issue of Weird Tales magazine, which is considered the classic magazine in American That'd literary history where all today. these people got their start. you know, That would be worth like a fortune today. Uh, approximately $10,000, I'm told. <sighs> Threw it all away. So uh, I, anyway, I, I, it, it took a great deal to forgive her for that, but she didn't, she didn't know. Anyway, well, all the things that might have been. 
Indeed. Um, some of the more intelligent fans who wrote to Lovecraft eventually became his good friends because they'd read him about, read, read his stories in Weird Tales, realized they were really a cut above everything else that was in Weird Tales, and they were wrote right to him. Uh, they eventually formed the, the Lovecraft Circle, as literary scholars call them, and these included a number of young people who would go on to become famous writers themselves, such as Robert E. Howard, creator of the Conan the Barbarian stories. Oh, yes. And the great science fiction writer Robert Block, who, along with many short stories and books, wrote a number of the Star Trek scripts in the 1960s. And Lovecraft's friends found that he was uh, very much the proper gentleman. Uh, but once he got to know you and uh, let his hair down, so to speak, he turned out to be a loyal friend and a really funny guy and with uh, that zany sense of humor that comes only from people with high intelligence. Now, one indication that Lovecraft's fictional world, worlds really were fictional, on top of what we said, is that except for the theme of this utter, utter outsideness we just mentioned, there was, a very, there was very little consistency among the characters and scenarios from story to story. I and mean, we were just talking about that. Uh, those lovable guys, you know, Cthulhu and yogg Thoth and a few others appear or are mentioned in a number of stories. Or Nyarlathotep, the crawling Nyarla, chaos. The crawling chaos, I like that. Yes. I'm sure it seems familiar today. Um, and there were also the, the, the sunken uh, cyclopean cities, as they call. Uh, but that's about as far as it goes with what is known as the Lovecraft mythos. And, and as I say, Durleth and others tried to codify that, and they wrote stories based on it. But Lovecraft always enjoyed it when his friends wrote stories with uh, with new beings from the, the, this mythos, and <coughs> excuse me, and uh, new cities and new uh, new scenarios. He, he thought that was great. So you know, had he really known something about this, you'd think that would have annoyed him more than anything else. Okay, we're going to take a commercial break here, and we're right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and com. Stay with us. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Garrow, the host of PRN's Garage Pass, where I keep you up to date with all the latest NASCAR racing news. Garage Pass can be heard right here on WOON every Tuesday through Saturday mornings at 735 and is sponsored by Simon Chevrolet, 114 Fortin Drive, One Socket. Remember, Simon Chevrolet is always open online at simonchevy.com. Garage Pass, Simon Chevrolet and WOON One Socket Radio, a win combination. Owen Radio, Owen Worldwide. And here we are again, and I wanted to remind you about Amazon Kindle and Amazon Kindle Fire, these wonderful e-reader devices uh, you can use to read everything from books, magazines, and newspapers to, uh, when you get to the upper end, Kindle device, certainly the uh, Kindle Fire you can download as well. Games, apps, and all sorts of marvelous things in full color. And it's only $199. Uh, the lower end uh, devices, that if you're just interested in reading, as low as $79 for the Amazon Kindle Reader. Check it out at Amazon.com and at Staples as well, and you'll find a whole new world opening to you. Especially if you live in a small place and can't afford uh, huge numbers of books and library, this, this, this is your library right in your hand. So uh, take advantage of it. Amazon Kindle and Amazon Kindle Fire. Okay, and welcome back. And we're talking this evening about H.P. Lovecraft, the great Rhode Island writer of horror stories and uh, science fiction and fantasy of the 20th century, who was a re- distant relative of Ben's and mine. And many people have speculated that, that the utterly alien and different things he wrote about and the books he referred to were real and that he had some secret knowledge of this and I'm sure some people still think that today i mean I, oh, I've, yeah. I've heard stories like people like going like sacrifice animals on his grave 
It's pretty grim. Yeah, uh, he's buried. In, I should maybe shouldn't even maybe say Swan Point Cemetery in Providence with Rhode Island's um, distinguished personalities from history. And uh, I, I don't know. He, he himself would be disgusted by by some of the things that uh, people think about what he believed. And I think, uh, although there was one occasion, or one of his friends, I should have looked it up. I, I can't remember the name of the friend, but went into an old bookstore in New York. And uh, there was an, uh, a very spooky old lady who was running the place, and she said, and he said to her, just as a joke, "Oh, do you happen to have the Necronomicon? You know, one of these fictional books." Of, <laughs> and she said, "Oh yes, just over here." And it gave him quite a start. And it turned out it was a mistake, but Lovecraft, you know, got a big <laughs> kick out of that. <laughs> it's good, to, you know. So this, these are the sorts of things that happen. But his friends knew that th- this stuff was made up. And uh, the in-jokes that resulted from the stories are really something that, that are a riot. Um, <clears throat> in fact, they had great fun with these, these in-jokes, and they really enjoyed inventing new monsters for the Lovecraft mythos and using them to annihilate each other. Uh, for example, in Lovecraft's 1935 story, The Haunter of the Dark, Lovecraft takes his, his room and its westward view in his own house on College Hill in Providence and puts it in the story, and he uses it as the scene to demolish his good friend, the aforementioned Robert Block, who in the story is called Robert Blake. Now it's funny that there was that was based it's on not very imaginative. Oh, but they had great. And of course, the readers of weird these were all published in the, you know weird tales and sometimes amazing stories and other pulp magazines of the time. But the readers had no idea what was going on. They thought these things that were real or or nah, just, or just really good, and they, they were they were writing about each other. And uh, th- there was one, I think it was one in one of Block's stories, there was uh, 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 the the Atlantean high priest, H.P.L., which, of course, based on H.P.L., his, his yeah. Lovecraft's initials. So they just had a great time with this stuff. You know, it's funny, the, this, the, the steeple and the church in that story, The Haunter of the Dark, uh, was visible from pretty much all over Providence, and it was a very spooky-looking place. Uh, it was torn down in the late 1990s, but it was uh, one of the Catholic churches on, on uh, Federal Hill in Providence. The, the, Providence has um, the two major hills, College Hill, where Brown University is and where Lovecraft lived, and then a visible in the west is Federal Hill, which uh, started out, believe it or not, as the Irish section in the 1840s, and, and, and it's not to this day as a... Famous for the Italian restaurants and the big Italian churches that were built in the 1920s. So, uh, just about everything Lovecraft writes about in Providence and in New England is uh, based on something real, uh, ap- apparently, except for the actual monsters and the actual multiversal situations that go on. Indeed. But anyway, um, Lovecraft's population has grown tremendously in recent decades. Uh, but then again, as that has grown, the more people seem to be convinced that his stories reflect some dark knowledge and terrifying reality. So, uh, those people must be dorks, right? Well, not so fast. Not so fast. Well, let's look at this again. When you really consider how quantum concepts have developed, and when I think how Ben and I apply these theoretical ideas in the paranormal trenches the horizon starts to look a little bit ominous. Everett's theory of multiple worlds, this is the graduate student, the guy in 1957 who came up with this multiple worlds idea, uh, led to the idea, as we mentioned before, that every possible world is real. 
somewhere or somewhere in this unimaginably vast interactive system of parallel worlds that we call the multiverse. We, ab- we imagine, we dream, we create, we remember, based entirely on the notion that our subconscious embraces the whole of the multiverse. That's how big we really are. And that implies that Lovecraft, profound materialist that he was in his own beliefs, would never have been able to conceive of Catholhu or the Outer Hells or Nyarlathotep or anybody else we've mentioned tonight or anything else in his fiction for that matter if something like them did not in fact exist in one or more real worlds. Now it's kind of hard to get our minds around that if we're not used to thinking about the multiverse. That doesn't mean those things are real here or that Cthulhu or somebody could come blasting through some world boundary and eat New York. I mean, sure, anything is possible, but the the, uh, laws of the multiverse, at least of our own consciousness, don't seem to admit that sort of thing, but taken to its logical or illogical conclusion, that is what quantum mechanics suggests. Now, for us, meaning Ben and myself, this is far more than theory. Now, I've been at this for 42 years, and Ben has been at it for almost eight. We do not do drugs. We do not have overactive imaginations. I think we function with great success in our private and public lives with our feet on the ground. But in the course of our work in the paranormal trenches, as I say, and indeed in the course of two daily lives that are shot through with multiverse awareness, simply because we live with this stuff, we see the multiverse in action. In our cases, we have encountered creatures that seem utterly other. So as can be said for many uh, brilliant people, Lovecraft could have been far closer to the truth, or at least the truth for some worlds, that, than he realized. And uh, But I don't think he realized it. I think that's the key. So anyway, let's put this in context. Physics has given us such insight into the nature of reality that some people are having trouble keeping their bearings. As with Lovecraft characters who learn too much about reality and go insane, several of the stories begin by people being in psychiatric hospitals, Uh, people write to us all the time because they are becoming more multiverse aware and feel they can't handle it. And why are they becoming more multiverse aware? Well, one of our theories is that because of the astronomical alignments, which reminds me of the Cthulhu mythos, mythos, it talks about that, astronomical uh, situation in the neighborhood here, the galactic neighborhood, there are a lot of uh, loose and very strong electromagnetic pulses coming and going, and uh, we feel this affects human behavior. We had a show on that last night on CBS. <clears throat> anyway, uh, people, some people just can't handle the thinning boundaries, if that's what it is, and the things that are occurring. Other, other people are just the opposite. They feel glorified by it. Now, what I'm saying there is that people are writing to us, you know, people are saying that they're professional people, they're business people, well-educated, but yet they will, one fellow was driving by a house, it was one color one day, and all of a sudden the next day it was the ne- it was uh, I think it was blue, right? Had been red, and the owner of the house, whom he happened to know, said, "What are you talking about? It's been red for years. It's been blue for years." Things like that, or people. Um, one woman wrote to us that she walked into the kitchen and saw herself sitting at the kitchen counter. Very common, and becoming more so. Uh, people saying the cat ran in. It was a different color than it was yesterday. I myself woke up and had a lot, because this is maybe means I'm getting younger, had a lot more black in my beard one day than I remembered from the previous day. It actually looked kind of brown. 
Really? Yeah, so he was completely white before. But you wouldn't remember that because that you are still carrying on in that same universe. Yeah, because your beard's not completely yeah, white. So I mean, but this seems to be how, nutty as it sounds, this is how it seems the universe seems to be constructed. And uh, in theologically... Ordered, in was, ordered chaos of sorts. Yes. That's really quite elegant. But theologically, we say, well, hey, you know, what, what greater... If, if the creation of, uh, is, is the... Uh, the um, result of God's love. God's love is infinite, so you create an infinite creation. All possibilities, not just one. So that's how I look at it theologically. Interesting theological statement. Anyway, physics uh, had all, has also given us the ability, on the other side of the coin, to destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons. And this brings about a fate every bit as horrible, cosmic, and complete as anything envisioned in Lovecraft's fiction. If you agree with us on nothing else, you certainly can't deny that that's real. The more quantum physics has taught us about what we really are and where we really live, the more Lovecraft's worlds of inexpressible beauty and of inexpre- indescribable horror call all uh, take on a reality and depth even he might not uh, be able to imagine. Or maybe he can. Uh, if we read uh, multiverse, the, uh, for reading the multiverse theory correctly, there are many parallel worlds in which Lovecraft never died. Exactly. Uh, many worlds in which the old gentleman of Providence, as he liked to talk to himself, uh, still gazes out his window at the westward roofs of that city, bathed in the sunsets he loves so much, contemplating mysteries within mysteries that could be true after all. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll put Depending on your point of view. I'm sorry. So, anyway, uh, we're just uh, oh, okay. wondering if we have a caller here. Do we have a caller? We do. And Perfect it's, uh, timing. Oh, God. It's uh, Bill from Franklin. Oh, very good. Uh... We got it. Bill from Franklin, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, um, I had something happen to me to offer on that. I'm not sure if it's uh, connected or not. But they call it the deja vu. Oh, yeah. Like, like I'm walking into a room and, and for a split second, like, I, like a, I, everything in the room has been is in the same spot and I've been here before and I've done this and then it's gone. Exactly. That's very common. That I happens get that, to me. I get oh, that yeah. a lot. Yeah, well, you know, people say um, nobody really understands that. We would say, as you can guess, that you really have been there and had done that or are doing it in a parallel life, and that, that seems to be how it works. And Joe Perrier said that when I, when I, when I told him. He, oh, he, well, he had the same experience. Oh, okay, well, there you go. Joe, uh, yeah. Well, Joe, Joe was very interested in our ideas, and um, we're very proud to have known him and been able to share the ideas with him. But he was an intelligent enough guy to come up with that on his own, too. I saw you. I saw you on on uh, TV uh, the other day. Oh, uh, the oh yeah, the, the uh, on the immort- History Channel. Oh yeah, the immortality through reruns. This was um, uh, but but the hurricane of '38. Oh no, New England's killer hurricane. Yeah, I was. Uh, I got some yeah, FaceTime in that. You, yeah. You were here. We're a historian, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, know, you never know where I'm going to turn up, Bill. I saw you. Oh, I know, I know who that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that guy. Well, it's funny. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've been in several History Channel features, and it's funny. I've been on TV mostly as a historian rather than as a paranormal investigator, which is probably just as well given some of the shows. But uh, yeah, it was fun doing that. It's funny where I was talking about the the incidents in Jamestown, and we and we we filmed that up in Quincy. So why they did that, I don't know, but it was fun to do. I don't, I don't, I don't know much about H.P. Lovecraft. This is interesting. 
It is. Uh, he was uh, one of the strangest people around, and uh, I refer to him in my book, uh, Rhode Island, A Genial History, as Rhode Island's greatest lover, which is ironic because he, he only got married once, and he was very... He didn't seem to be very interested in, in uh, you know, women. I mean, he, he was he was straight, but I mean, he you know, because he, he married somebody, but or whatever. There, there's no indication. But I call him Rhode Island's greatest lover because he loved Rhode Island so much, and he loved Providence. On his gravestone in Swan Point Cemetery, it says a quote from one of his letters: "I am Providence." Oh yeah. So he was a. I think there's a. I think it's a rock and roll band by that name, isn't there? Lovecraft or something? Oh, yeah. The, the, the yeah, name and the ideas have spread out throughout cult, human culture. As a matter of fact, in The Pirates of the Caribbean, the, the most recent movie, Ben's better at movies than I am, but there's... I know, I know the band you're talking about. They're terrible. They're like a, they're like a death metal band. They're t- awful. Oh, yeah. Well, in the movie, though, it's uh, I guess it's supposed to be Davy Jones... And he's got the, the the tentacles on his face. That's what Cthulhu was supposed to look like. A pirate. Yeah. Well, yeah. He wore the pirate hat, but he certainly had the tentacles and kind of non-human look like that. So, Lovecraft's ideas are spread all over literature and the movies. Okay. But, but very interesting. I just, I just wanted to make a brief comment. Oh, glad you did, Bill. Okay. Talk hey, to you. Take welcome. care. Okay. Always welcome. Have a good Bye. one. Okay. Very good. So, um, there's uh, an interesting letter here, here from. Um, Peggy, well, Peggy Ray, I guess that's not her last, in Seattle, about Lovecraft. Okay, so uh, Peggy writes to us. I have read uh, Lovecraft's collected letters, and he obviously detested religion. You, on the other hand, are obviously believers, and I wouldn't go that far. Uh, if you were uh, to talk to uh, Lovecraft about God, what would you say? Okay, well, you know, I certainly am a believer in, in God. As a matter of fact, uh, I always honor uh, the Roman Catholic Church, because that's where I learned to love God. I wouldn't consider myself religious. I'd consider consider myself spiritual, but I do believe. Yeah, there there is. A I, I believe in the same thing as you, basically. Yeah, sort well, of. well, you and I are different critters, but yeah, you know. Uh, but but I, you know, there is a difference between being spiritual and being religious. Uh, from what Lovecraft, knew, but he he would go on uh, for whole letters about you know being an atheist. Uh, I I suppose on the other hand, though, he would talk very. Uh, solicitously about the church, he believed that religion and the the church in particular were great forces for establishing moral behavior and regularity in society. Okay, and uh, we're looking around at society today, one might think he had a point. Because on the other hand, uh, you don't want you want you want to have a positive spiritual. You don't you don't want uh, religion based on fear. Because it should be based on love. And ironically, in some of our paranormal cases, we run into people whose spirituality is, is regular but based on fear rather than love. They have more paranormal problems than most people do. Uh, anyway, that, that, that's, I guess, for another show. But in any way, anyway, Peggy, how would I talk to Lovecraft about God? Well, I, I don't know if I would, but I, I, mean, I, I would look for an opportunity to. Given the state of knowledge that he had and again I don't think he had any special knowledge about strange realms or creatures I think he just had a great imagination and a little bit of scientific information that, that, that he played upon given the state of knowledge of the 1920s and 1930s science really was entirely based on this scientific materialism when you look back at it it really was quite arrogant uh, and very narrow and assuming 
the epistemology of that we always question. Epistemology is how what we know and how we know it. So I think with Lovecraft, if if I took the argument that we really don't know anything, that we can't trust our five physical senses. And, of course, what quantum physics has found out today about what is beyond us, what is beyond our bodies, what is beyond our senses, he might have begun to listen because he did make the distinction between, I hope, between religion and belief, uh, and belief in God. Now, now I might correct myself there. I'm not sure that he really did. Um, When people's whole experience of God is an oppressive spirituality, a negative spirituality, a mean, nasty, dry-mouthed old preacher, you know, bellowing in his barn-like church. I mean, that would put me off, too. Mm. I know of several very, very frustrated people because they're frustrated. uh, they're, They're frustrated because they are atheists and yet have a spiritual temperament. They have a religious temperament. They're the kinds of people who would respond to what I guess today is known as the God gene, that bit of our DNA that is now being studied that seems to contain messages from someone at our creation that we are homo otterons. Well, the thing is, H.P. Lovecraft's not like everybody today because if you're if someone's an atheist today and you go up to them like, oh, hey, let's have a debate about this, they'd be like, you're wrong, or the, <laughs> or the other way around because people don't know how to debate anymore. It's just, I'm right, you're wrong, shut up, go home. That's a very good point. So H.P. Lovecraft would probably be like, all right, well, let's sit down and have a chat about this, have a little bit of tea. Yep. And he would... We love coffee with four scoops of uh, sugar in it. Sounds like grandma. Yeah, exactly. But, um, <laughs> Tell no, if if he would seems like a level-headed guy, I mean a little odd, yeah. but level-headed guy yeah. as a, like some people were back then. A lot of great thinkers are usually level-headed people. Mm-hmm. So one could assume that the argument was never made that well, what if we don't really know? You're right, because they they thought they knew everything. The whole the, the whole attitude came out of the Enlightenment, the, this period in the, the so-called Enlightenment, ah, this yes, period in the Europe in the in the uh, 18th century where people believed. That everything, everything was the, the universe was a big machine, all right, and that if you could find out how all the parts worked, you could not only understand the whole, you could predict the future, because the whole thing was a big machine. You know, you could, tell, you could predict where it would be in 20 years. Now that seems to be rather silly, because it's a lot more than a big machine. Uh, so, but that, that's that's the attitude that Lovecraft had. But he he was intellectually honest. He wouldn't just say, as you say, that you're wrong. You could have a debate with him. And there were several times in his life when he changed his attitude and he changed his point of view uh, because someone gave him a good argument in favor of that point of view. I res- that's why I respect his intelligence, because he knew how he realized there are things he didn't know and that uh, if you get better information, you change your point of view. And uh, I don't know how many people today would would do that. Because usually, I do not respect the intelligence of atheists. Because why should they? They miss the whole point of the universe. That's my opinion. But someone like Lovecraft, I think, could be. Uh, you could have an intelligent debate with him on this. He might not change his mind, but I think he would be interested in some of these. Well, the these thing arguments. is, you could exchange ideas without it getting into a heated argument. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Which is you don't really yeah. find that that often. Anymore. I think he would. He would respect the. Um, uh, sort of this um, apophatic 
epistemology argument, you know, the sort of arguing our argument from what we don't know. So, so anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, Peggy, but that that seems to be some sort of uh, uh, an approach that I think might uh, that I might have taken with my dear cousin had I known him. Yeah, well, you can't make. You can't put 20th century, uh, 21st century restrictions on 20th century people. That's another thing with him. Uh, he is looked back upon by many critics as, as, a, as a renowned racist. Okay. Oh, yeah. I had a friend who said that. I was like, oh, I like H.P. Lovecraft. He was like, he's racist. And I was like, well, so is everybody else. <laughs> so is everybody else. That was normal from the 1920s and 30s. I can't stand it. Speaking as a historian, I can't stand it when people take 21st century um, ideas and principles and standards and, and, and impose them upon people from the past. Not it's saying not that it's fair. Not saying it's not it's that that it's right for I'm them to be it's like right, but, but it's not fair. Yeah, exactly. That's the and, and in Lovecraft's case, it's especially unfair because it's not true, not oh, entirely, really? not entirely true. The older he got, and this is again why I respect his intelligence. The older he got, the more he learned. I mean, you know, he would go on about this group or that group, but he married. A woman who was a Ukrainian Jew, uh, in her own right, a brilliant writer, and a, and a wonderful person by all accounts. And then, uh, beyond that, he welcomed into his circle of friends more and more people of, of different backgrounds. And, and if you said to them he was a racist, they'd say, what? This is the warmest, most wonderful guy, most loyal friend, perfect gentleman you'd ever want to meet. So by the end of his life, he became a... He really became a socialist in the Roosevelt sense of the word, not, not in the modern sense of the word. Wait, FDR or TR? FDR. Okay. Yeah, Franklin Roosevelt. Because remember, he was living during the Depression, and anybody with a heart during the Depression pretty much became a socialist because they, they didn't... Yeah, you know, they didn't think of the practicalities. They just thought of the end. They saw the robber barons and they they saw the worst of capitalism. Because, you know, um, I mean, yeah, I think anybody would agree capitalism needs to be supervised. Yeah, you know, to a certain extent, uh, as long as you have intelligent leadership who's you know gotten their hands dirty at some point. Anyway, oh yeah, that, that's not the point of the show. But, but anyway, Lovecraft uh, became less and less racist until by the end of his life. I don't think you could even call him that. So it's not, again, not fair to really say uh, that he was a lifelong racist because I don't believe that was true. Indeed, I just, uh, I just, it just bothers me so much when people do that because it, it like, I had a history class where, like, um, like people would be like, "Oh, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this?" I was like, oh, it, "This is just what they did. Like, <laughs> you, yeah. that's just how their society was." Well, people today often think very two dimensionally. Uh, you know, we're not well informed. People don't are not well educated. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why people are coming out of schools like that, but I, I could just see some of the teachers having to spend a lot of time maintaining discipline rather than teaching. And uh, I, and let's let's admit, I mean, there, there are people in every field who aren't quite up to the job, and that must must include some teachers. Although there are some teachers I'll never forget, yeah, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So in any case, um, Lovecraft was the product of his time, and I think he um, was ahead of his time, perhaps even socially and morally and spiritually in a way mm. uh, just as he was scientifically by his use of the multiverse ideas now again posthumous analysis of any kind is always dangerous yeah but uh, and there will be we had hoped actually this evening to have uh, dr niels hobb from university of rhode island uh, come up but it was very spur of the moment and he was not able to, to yeah, be here the infamous traffic on 95 oh gosh just, that, that was yeah because uh, we're at the other end of the state from you are right because albeit the state is only 48 miles long but nevertheless <laughs> 
Uh, so so Dr. Hobbs is going to is is one of the organizers of the uh, Necronomicon. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. 2013. Yeah. You know what's funny? Um, I actually had a friend who invited a bunch of us to that. And <laughs> oh, well, already? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard something about it before, and then you yeah. mentioned it, and I was like, "Wait, what?" I happen to run into August of next year, 2013. Yeah. Uh, this the conference will occur in Providence, and I remember um, that I, as a member of the press, went to the World Fantasy Convention in 1979 at that very location. And they would have it in Providence every five years uh, f- in honor of Lovecraft. Yeah. So this, uh, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I, we, we have, uh, we're, we're working on a few things. Ben and I might be involved uh, in that conference in some way, and uh, still in, there, in the discussion stages on that. And we um, will, uh, in future, have uh, Dr. Hobbs on the show uh, to promote this conference. So there we are. So anyway, let's uh, get to our announcements. All right. We're out of time. So the next up on our tour, uh, our public appearances, uh, we have town hall style meetings in Woodbridge, Suffolk, England on Saturday, September 22nd, and we will present our program Exploring the Paranormal with CBS Radio's Paul and Ben Eno and WOON at the Grove House Hotel in Woodbridge, Suffolk, England from uh, 7 to 11 p.m. Tickets are 11 pounds per person and will include... 15 pounds. Uh, 15. Sorry, I yeah. saw 11 a p.m. deflation. So 15 pounds per person and will include a full buffet dinner courtesy of the hotel and profits will go to local charities so this event will take place in a highly active paranormal area which was the scene of the famous rendlesham forest ufo incidents of 1980 and larry warren who was a witness to these events and co-author of the book left at east gate plans to be with us that evening as well so more information and to buy the tickets visit www.spaceportuk.com-events.html or just go to behindtheparanormal.com and look for the link to the site under what's new and finally my dad and I will be featured speakers at the All Hallows Eve Psychic Fair at the Crown Hall or Crown Plaza Hotel in Warwick Rhode Island on set on Sunday October 28th so watch for more info on these events and more at www.behindtheparanormal.com and stay tuned for news, as I say, of the Necronomicon Providence we just talked about. I will be talking more about that as we go. Uh, certainly check our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. We have uh, hours and hours and hours. I think if you, if you want to listen to all of our shows, it would take you about 520 hours to do so. But, hey, get started. You can also buy my books, subscribe to our newsletter, and or apply to report, or become a reporter on the site. Yeah, you can also uh, download the podcast, put them onto your iPod or something. You can listen sure. to them like that. So uh, many thanks to our producer, Ben himself, uh, who's uh, doing Thank a fine you. job at that. And we won't see you next Monday, September 3rd. It's Labor Day in the USA. And well, so why labor? Ironically, Ben and I will be taking the day off, and the show will be a rebroadcast. So on our regular CBS radio edition on Sunday, September 22nd, in Boston... Second. Pits, yeah, 20... 20 uh, second, sorry. The... I don't know what time. I don't know where. You're thinking I, what, of our UK trip. I am. We're coming back. I am. <laughs> uh, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, we'll be doing a rebroadcast. Uh, appropriately, we leave you this evening with a thought from H.P. Lovecraft himself. "Quote: I never ask a man what his business is, for it never interests me. What I ask him about are his thoughts and dreams." So, thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.